I told you so. You might have heard those words or used them yourself. It's an expression that usually has a negative connotation, right? It's usually said when someone is bragging about something or as a way to make someone else feel even worse in an argument. See, when we do it, it's really annoying. But when God does it, it's really reassuring. It shows us that he can be trusted to keep his word. And the book of Isaiah has a lot of I told you so's by God. For our last message in our Behold Your God mini-series, we want to consider from our text that God is a God of providence. You might not be familiar with the word providence, but you might have heard of God's sovereignty. When we say God is sovereign, we are talking about his right and power to do all he wills in and through his creation, that he is over all that he has made. Now, providence takes it a step further. Simply put, God's providence is his sovereignty in action, fulfilling his purposes. So it's not just that he has power over all creation, but the fact that he actively exercises that power for his purposes. What I'm hoping we learn from Isaiah 45 today is that God works his providence for his people to his praise. Again, that's God works his providence for his people to his praise. The passage itself is pretty straightforward. We're looking at Isaiah 45, 1 to 7. It's pretty straightforward, but its implications, on the other hand, are absolutely cosmic. If we can truly grasp even a fraction of what this means, friends, it changes everything. Our time today will be split into three points. His providence, his people, his praise. So let's think firstly about how God works his providence. There are some movie lines that have made their way into pop culture, so much so that a lot of people have heard them by now, even if they haven't seen the movies. You know some of them, right? I'll be back. <laughs> you shall not pass. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Luke, I am your father. Sure, you might have heard the words, but they don't bear the same weight without the context to understand what's happening. And so to make sense of the opening verses from our text, we need to first understand the context in the book of Isaiah. The short version is that because of his people's unfaithfulness, God had declared that he was going to judge them through the then insignificant kingdom of Babylon. And this judgment was going to look like destruction and exile. So with impending doom coming their way then, the people began to question whether God had forgotten his covenant faithfulness and loyal love. So to reassure them of his faithfulness in the midst of their unfaithfulness, along with judgment, he prophesies about coming comfort and deliverance for his people. And that spans chapters 40 to 55, and we've seen snapshots of this already from our previous messages. So that's some of the context. This brings us to verses 1 to 3 in our text today. 
we read, Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to lose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. The chapter opens up with a vocal address. It's pretty simple, right? Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is speaking to, or at least about, someone named Cyrus. And in his address, God speaks some hefty claims about this person. Now, of course, right at the start, the elephant in the room is the title God gives to him. He calls Cyrus his anointed, or Messiah. On this side of history, the word immediately brings to mind another person, but let's slow down here. And just in case you're wondering, Cyrus is not another name for Jesus. It's not like the Aramaic version or something. No, this is someone else who is being referred to as Yahweh's anointed or Messiah by Yahweh himself. So what should we make of this? Well, the term Messiah or anointed was a literal term that became an expression to mean someone set apart by God for a specific purpose or function. So, for example, kings and priests in the Old Testament would be literally anointed with oil to symbolize their being set apart for the, uh, for the roles in the life of God's people. So here, God himself declares that Cyrus has been set apart by him for a specific purpose. And then he says he has grasped Cyrus's right hand. With the right hand being symbolic for a ruler's strength, this likely implies that God is saying he has chosen Cyrus for a purpose and he will strengthen him to show the legitimacy of his choice. This is even more evident from all the, the promises that God gives to him in these verses. He says, I will make you victorious. I will make you wealthy. I will give you victory in all your conquests. All this might not mean much until we pause and ask the question, well, who is Cyrus? To answer this question, we're going to look to, through two lenses, prophecy and history. So let's start with prophecy. See, other than our passage for today, there are at least five other instances that God prophesies about Cyrus in the book of Isaiah. But for the sake of time, we'll briefly look at two. In Isaiah 41, God says, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right? And then again in Isaiah 44, which was part of our scripture reading, we read in verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Here we, we get his name, Cyrus. God says that this person will fulfill his purpose of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. 
Friends, we need to understand that what we read here goes way beyond prediction. This is providence. Prediction is a declaration of things beforehand, like I predict it will snow tomorrow, or I predict that there will be a budding romance in the church by the end of February. If you know the history of what tends to follow young adult retreats, uh, you would know that that might actually be a legitimate statement. However, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I can't predict these things with 100% accuracy, so don't stone me if neither of those things happen. See, prediction is a declaration of things in advance. Providence, on the other hand, God's sovereignty in action, fulfilling his purposes, is not simply a matter of knowledge or deductive foresight. God says he's declaring these things beforehand, but also that he has purposed them to happen this way. It is certain once he has said so, it will be so. So if we piece all, these, uh, all the information together, According to these prophecies written roughly around 686 BC, God tells us that a man named Cyrus from a far country will take over the empires of the world, conquer Babylon from the north or east, we're not sure yet, call upon the name of the Lord and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So with that information, let's take a look at history and find out if anyone matches what God is saying here. Well, roughly around 600 BC, a man named Cyrus was born, who would go on to be known as Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia. He is famous for conquering most of the ancient Near East, and around 539 BC, he conquers Babylon by evading from the north, even though Persia is to the east of Babylon. So we see then his name, his origin, and accomplishments all match up to what God said would happen. So how about the calling on the name of the Lord and rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple? Well, in Ezra 1, we read that around 538 BC, God stirs up Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made this declaration throughout all his empire. We read, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God in Jerusalem. Friends, isn't this amazing? About 150 years before it came to pass, God spoke through Isaiah in great detail about what was going to happen. And he wasn't just predicting it, he said he would make it so. But let's end our history lesson there and try and process all we've been thinking about so far. What have we learned and more importantly, what does it all mean? Well, at least one thing we learn is that God controls the events of human history. Kings and their kingdoms exist for his purposes. Whether it's Babylon or Persia, all kingdoms and their rulers are in his hands. 
And this also applies to Trudeau in Canada, King Charles III in England, and Putin in Russia. All are in his hands. See, being God requires his absolute handle on all things. And what better way to prove that by promising that an unlikely non-Jewish Messiah would deliver his people from exile 150 years before it happens? So when God says, I told you so, he wants us to see that he is the true God who is able to speak the end from the beginning. But friends, this universal control over lives and events doesn't just apply to kings or those in authority. This applies to each and every one of you too. The author, Jen Wilkin, writes, There are no limits to what he controls. Thus, whatever he wills, he does. He is completely free to act according to what he decrees. He requires permission from no one. Because he needs nothing from anyone, knows all things, is everywhere present, and holds all power, no one exists who could possibly trump or challenge his plans. The providence of God, his sovereignty in action fulfilling his purposes, is the culmination of all his attributes. See, his power means he's able to do what he wants. His knowledge and wisdom means he is aware of every possible variable. His being everywhere all, at all times means nothing escapes his sight or is out of his reach. All these attributes speak to his ability to say something and actually make it happen. This means that everything, and I mean Everything that happens in your lives and mine has happened or happens under the gaze of this great God. Think about your life so far. How much of God's working in your life on a daily basis do you truly comprehend? I think about my own life, how I ended up in Canada or in this church or the countless factors that had to align for my daughter to be here today, or even the immeasurable variables that have to exist in our cosmic reality for this very planet to be as inhabitable as it is. These details that our minds fail to comprehend, God controls effortlessly for his purposes. This means... From God's perspective, absolutely nothing is random or coincidental. But this can either be incredibly comforting or incredibly scary, depending on his character, depending on what his purposes actually are. So let's look at his purposes in our remaining two points and see why God's providence should bring us incredible comfort. Next, let's consider how God works his providence for his people. He works his providence for his people. Like I said, God's providence can be seen as the culmination of his attributes. His power, knowledge, wisdom, and presence make him able to do whatever he wants. And yet, what he wants to do is also informed by his attributes. 
His steadfast love, his faithfulness, his goodness, his justice, his holiness. We read in verse 4, God says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. Do you understand what that means? God calls the great Cyrus, conqueror of kingdoms, sets him apart, grants him victory and wealth, and for what purpose? For God's own people. History is his story, and he has chosen to make his story about how he proves his character through his dealings with his people. He moved nations both to judge and to comfort them. All of his providence was working for the sake of those he had set his love upon. Let's pause for a moment here. See, because God is God over all creation, and not just the God of the Israelites back then or the God of Christians today, it means he is actively sustaining all of life including providing the breath of the very ones who curse his name and deny that he even exists. For example, we read in Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. This means if you are listening today and you are not a Christian, then know that this very God you are rejecting is the very one who sustains you. Your food is from his hand. The breath in your lungs is from him. And according to the Bible, these acts of kindness shown to you, the greatest of which is being patient with you while you deny him with the very breath he gives you, these acts of kindness are meant to lead you to repentance. Make no mistake, whether you like it or not, the God we have been talking about is God over you too. He said to Cyrus, I name you although you do not know me. And friend, he knows all about you too, even if you reject him. You are accountable to him, even though you might try to reason him away. But there is hope for you, friend, and indeed there's hope for us all. See, the way Hebrew prophecy tends to work is that prophets would put multiple prophecies side by side, some happening sooner and others later. So when the sooner prophecies are fulfilled, you will be assured that the later prophecies will also be fulfilled. Isaiah has been speaking about God's ethnic people, the Jews. He spoke of the common physical exile because of their sin and the common Messiah who would put an end to their exile and bring them back into their land. However, there is a counterpart prophecy, one to come later. In Isaiah 49, we read in verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Similar to Cyrus, there was someone else called by name. 
And we read in verse 5, and now Yahweh says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. Also, like Cyrus, he is to be anointed, set apart to bring Jacob and Israel back, and he will be strengthened by God. But here's the twist. Listen to what God says about him in the next verse. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God is saying, you are my anointed for much more than restoring the physical exiles back to the land. You are set apart to bring my salvation, not just to ethnic Israel, but to all the nations, to the very ends of the earth. See, friends, there are messiahs and then there's the messiah. Cyrus was simply a prologue to what God was promising to do. And remember what we said about Hebrew prophecy. The fulfillment of the sooner prophecy was to provide assurance that the fulfillment of the later prophecy would happen. The deliverance by Cyrus came about 150 years after these prophecies. And just like with Cyrus, if we went through a similar exercise for this other Messiah and matched him to history, we would find Jesus Christ who came over 600 years after this prophecy. Unlike Cyrus, who was a mere man and didn't have a relationship with God in a personal sense, Jesus is the very Son of God. The deliverance he brings is not a physical one, but a way back from the spiritual exile we all brought upon ourselves through our disobedience and rebellion. Jesus Christ. Rather than exalting himself like Cyrus, humbled himself by dying unjustly on a cross so that through him the justice of God would be satisfied for all those who would put their trust in him. Friend, you need not save yourself. Indeed, you cannot save yourself any more than the ancient Jews could escape the exile themselves. Trust in God's anointed for the salvation of your soul. Let his kindness lead you to repentance and put your faith in the one whose providence moves all of history for the sake of his people. God works his providence for his people. Oh, Christian, do I even need to spell out how amazing this reality is. My wife and I, we enjoy watching cooking shows. And every now and then, we see cooks that have a kind of no-waste philosophy to their cooking. Fish heads, chicken legs, onion skins, banana pills, you name it, they use it. And here we thought we were special for making fries with the skin still on. See, the point was that nothing was to be wasted. Every part of the ingredient was to be used for the purpose of the meal. Well, in a similar sense, no detail is too minute to be left unused by God. Every aspect of our human experience is carefully crafted towards an end for God's people. 
Let this thought marinate in your mind. God is doing about 10,000 things all at once, and each has like a thousand effects, all according to his purposes for his people. And he's not like Azarina and I trying to play the game overcooked, burning the kitchen down. He is ever careful, ever watchful, always coordinated, and always on time. What trust this should build in our hearts. What peace this should secure for our minds. God's providence, his sovereignty in action, fulfilling his purposes, means that nothing happens in your life without his permission. Dear brother or sister in Christ, I don't know what you're dealing with right now. I don't know what you've been through in the past. A lot of you have been through things that I can't even imagine to be going through. But if you are his child, through faith in Jesus, I can tell you confidently that none of your experiences, not one of them, is wasted by God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? The next verse tells us, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The good all things work together towards is not an easy, stress-free life. It's not job security. And it's not even physical safety. He might provide these things, but that's not what's in view here. He works his providence for his people to make them more like Jesus. I've heard the expression that God is a slow cooker. And I think it's true. See, we rarely see what God is doing in and through us. He's like a slow cooker. We are like instant noodles. We think of the results we want immediately. He looks at the echoes of events through a hundred lifetimes. Our eyes are on today. His eyes are on eternity. See, this means that whether it's a baby crying in the middle of the night when you have to preach a sermon the next morning, (laughs) or a company-wide layoff, or a messy breakup of failing health, a death in the family, rebellious children, seasons of loneliness or suffering, church departures and leadership changes, friends, whatever it is, God has purposed it for his people to make us more like Christ. He lets some endure suffering so that they might be a comfort to other sufferers. He delivers some from mortal danger so that they might tell of his protection and kindness. He lets some get martyred that their testimony might be sealed with their blood and proven more powerful. He withholds physical healing so that some might lean wholly on his strength from day to day. Friends, we might not even grasp a fraction of what God is doing at any given moment. But brothers and sisters in Christ, if you look back in your lives or even in your very conversion, I'm sure you can trace some of the providence of God at work in your life for his good. Jesus, Jesus, 
how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. He is trustworthy. John Flavel, an old Puritan, encourages Christians not to despise the less appealing outworkings of God's providence. He writes, Why should we be cast down under sad providences while we have so great security that even by the hands of these providences, God will do us good and these things shall turn into your salvation? By these, God is but killing your lusts, weaning your hearts from a vain world, preventing temptations, and exciting your desires after heaven. This is all the hurt they shall do to you. And shall that sadden us? Friends, God works his providence for his people. But we cannot, indeed we must not stop there. For even that purpose serves an even grander, more glorious purpose. God works his providence for his people to his praise. When we read the Bible... There are important indicators and clues the authors leave to help us make sense of what we are reading. And two kinds of those indicators are purpose result statements and repetition. We see both in our text today. Let's think about purpose result statements. See, there are three main purpose result statements in our passage that carry the weight of the message. And when we pay attention, we see that there are actually two purposes with one kind of repeated. Here they are. First in verse 3, God says that you, Cyrus, may know that I am Yahweh. Second in verse 4, he says, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. And third in verse 6, that people may know that there is none besides me. We've already looked at one of these purposes in our second point, so we will focus on the others. God's providence, his sovereignty in action, fulfilling his purposes, is so that he would be known as the one and only God. This becomes even clearer when we look at the repetition in our passage. There are a lot of I statements by God here. He's doing all the heavy lifting. God says he will do all these things for Cyrus. And all that is overwhelming enough, and yet for me, the beginning of verse 5 and the end of verse 6 are what stand out the most if we're talking about repetition. We read at the start of verse 5, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And then we read at the end of verse 6, there is none besides me, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. These two statements mirror each other. All that God has been saying, all that he has purposed to do is to prove to both his unfaithful people and the watching world that their idols are but cheap ornaments. What audacity to put them on his level or worse, to put them in his place. Only he rightly deserves reverence and worship as God. And unlike the so-called gods made by men to serve their own interests, it is impossible for God to be tamed by his own creation. We see this clearly in the heavy statement that ends the, the passage. As God says in verse 7, I form light. 
and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. I know my well-meaning brothers and sisters might be quick to want to come in here to God's defense and try and make God's statement more politically correct or PC if you're hip. But friends, God doesn't need your help. His statement here brings us face to face with the jarring reality. Listen, God is either sovereign over both good and evil or he isn't sovereign at all. God's providence is his sovereignty in action, fulfilling his purposes, and sometimes this involves a good and holy God permitting evil. John Piper, the beloved pastor and author, writes, God plans and ordains that some things come to pass that he hates. God hates sin. It dishonors him and destroys his people, yet he planned to permit sin to come into his perfect creation. Therefore, in God's infinite wisdom and holiness, it is not sinful for him to plan that sin come to pass. There are no doubt countless wise and holy reasons God plans to uh, permit sin. God is sovereign over both good and evil. But we must be careful here to say that he does not bring them about in the same way. For example, the Bible makes it clear that God is good and only does good. And the Apostle John tells us in 1 John that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And then James writes in his letter, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does not coerce anyone to sin. We are all responsible for our actions, and yet God stands sovereign even over our sins, not just by knowing in advance what our hearts intend to do, but also by permitting it to come to pass for his own purposes. One of the most vivid lessons of this truth is what happens with Joseph and his brothers that we read in Genesis. See, they sold him into slavery out of envy. And yet God saves his whole family through him being in Egypt. And John Piper is helpful again here as he writes, as he reflects on this. He says, as for you, you meant it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It does not say God used it for good. It says God meant it for good. The same word used for the sinful intentions of the brothers. They meant it for evil. They have one intention in the act, and God has another intention in the act. Theirs is sinful, God's is saving, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Does this make you tremble? I know it makes me tremble, it should. Behold your God of providence, whose sovereignty in action, fulfilling his purposes, involves permitting all the worst atrocities that have happened in the history of mankind. 
The evils committed by human beings are plain to see in our history, and yet God is not shy to claim ultimate ownership and authorship over history. Why? Because God works his providence for his people to his praise. And do you know the darkest providence history has ever known? There have been genocides. There was the Holocaust. But friends, the darkest providence history has known is declared by the Apostle Peter in Acts 2 when he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God permitted Not only that his son would be murdered by unjust, corrupt men who are responsible for their actions, but he actually purposed it even before the foundation of the world. Why? Ephesians 2 tells us, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The death of Christ is the outworking of God's providence for his people to his praise. So what does that mean? It means that God is ever and always in control, even of the things that rebel against him and go against his desires for his creation. Both the good and the bad things that happen to the children of God are carefully ordered by the loving Father for their good. But this doesn't excuse our actions. We are still called to be responsible for and accountable for all that we do. And yet, the Christian should feel no need to be in control because ultimately, God is. The blessings and calamities of life are under his jurisdiction and he can be trusted with the final say because he is for us and most importantly for his own praise and glory. So friends, God works his providence for his people and to his praise. So if you're a Christian, you can say these next few words with utmost confidence. Whether good times or bad, or wherever may be, he causes all things to work out for me. Yet I'm not the star in this wonderful story. He orders all things to the praise of his glory. Please pray with me.